our Father who art in heaven. What does this mean? You may be seated. The third of the six chief parts is the Lord's Prayer. The first being the Ten Commandments and the second being the Apostles' Creed. This order is intentional and it is also instructive for us as well. The Ten Commandments are addressed to all creation. And I use the word creation in, with, a, with intention. The call out to the entire universe, have no other gods before me, includes not just people, but every single living creature. In fact, in fact Jesus would even say the rocks and the, the trees call out also the praise of God. The heavens declare the glory of God, etc., etc. So all creation is addressed with that command. Believers, unbelievers, and, and every atom that God has created have no other gods before me. Align yourself with my will and do not be rebellious against me. And as the commandments then follow, they describe for us again what is good and what is evil, what we are to do, what we are not to do, what we are to leave undone. The reason God has to describe for us good and evil is that because of our rebellion, in the face of our rebellion, we have forgotten what good and evil are, according to his definitions. We, to be blunt about it, we make up our own definitions. We call what is good evil, and we call what is evil good. And we switch them all around all the time, as is whatever we want, whatever our own hearts would desire. We're creators that way creators and rebellers against God's good creation. And so God reasserts in the Ten Commandments and in the law in general what is good and what is evil. He retells us. He intends to reshape our own appreciation of good and evil. He intends to tune our consciences and tune our hearts and minds to, to his revelation because we we wouldn't come to these things ourselves because, well, self-interest is what we imagine to be in our interests. The interests of God and the interests of our neighbor are, well, not even just secondary, they don't even come to mind. And so the Lord reasserts in the law what is good and what is evil. One of the effects of that, of course, is that not being perfect ourselves and being under the curse of corruption, we see that law and we, we rebel against it some more. We see that law in its perfection and we imagine that God can't really mean it. We imagine that God would only give us a word that we could actually perform. What, why would it be fair to tell us to do things that we can't do? But of course, that would assume that the law is there to give us some mode of being righteous in and of ourselves, as though that was even possible anymore. That, in fact, would be a lie. 
that would be to confirm us in this treadmill of imagining that we could be our own best righteousness. The Lord gives us the law in its perfection without watering it down one whit, keeping the bar of perfection right at the very top so that we can clearly see that we don't meet the standard. In fact, we have no hope of meeting the standard. But that's not going to be the way of salvation at all. And so God addresses us from beyond time and beyond the clouds and beyond all his majesty. He addresses us and we are condemned. And the answer to that condemnation, the answer to that quandary is right there in the creed. Following right on the heels of the last of the commandments, the Lord God issues to us his good news. Ah, but I am God the Father. I am not just God that you cannot know and that you have never known, but I am God your Father who has created you, who has shaped you with my own hands, who loves you. And I'll, I'll tell you how you can know for sure about my love. You can take a look at my son, Jesus Christ. And you can see in him the full contours of my love, the full extent of my love, its length, its depth, its breadth, its height. And you can see there what I have done to fix the problem that we both know is our current reality. I have given you a righteousness that could, you could never have in your brokenness. And so the obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ, his full and utter obedience to that very law, is his gift to us. And his death, enduring the punishment that we ourselves have earned by our rebelliousness, is his gift to us. And so he's covered both sides of the equation. We have a righteousness that we could not have of our own in Christ, and we have the payment for our own guilt that we could never pay in Christ. He has thoroughly done it all. And at the other end of that work is resurrection and new life. And his reign from heaven now to bestow these very gifts on us. In the face of the law then comes our Lord's gospel. The good news that Jesus is for us. And we would never believe that unless it were by the work of the Holy Spirit to come to us and, and pound that truth home, to open deaf ears and to enlighten darkened minds and to open hushed and muted mouths. Because if the, the salvation of Jesus were like a, a tree falling in the woods with no one there to hear it, who would benefit from it? But the Holy Spirit has sent out his messengers, his apostles and missionaries and evangelists and pastors and teachers, and all of the good gifts that the church has to offer to call and gather and enlighten and sanctify his people under this very word of proclamation. You are thoroughly guilty, but Christ is thoroughly innocent and righteous. And so the psalmist asks, who can come to God's holy hill, the one who is perfect? And how shall we be perfect but unless we are in Christ? To be in Christ, then, is to come to the waters of holy baptism and be washed and robed in him. To come to Christ, then, is to receive of his own body and blood so that we can be 
righteous from the inside out as well as from the outside in, robed and fed. So God is no longer the transcendent hidden God from behind the clouds who is, who is unknowable, but he has made himself known. He has given us his good gifts and he invites us to call upon him as father. You see the shift from the first commandment to the first words of the Lord's Prayer. God demands I must worship him and I don't even know why. But now I do know he is my creator. He has redeemed me under the tyrannies of all of the pharaohs. He has sent to me his only begotten son so that he might be my true savior and king. He has invited me and adopted me into his family by that son and by that spirit so that we can be in the same tent and share hospitality together. To be in his household and to be his beloved child. Along with being my brother Jesus, your sibling. To be adopted into this family. Be one generation removed from Almighty God. To be here in his place. In his house. At his table. And so it is nothing more than natural based on these promises, these gifts, these realities, that I can come to the Lord, just as the Lord Jesus has invited me to say, not just God out there somewhere, but Father, my Father who art in heaven. Well, what would invite us to pray? Certainly, certainly we have the promised access to God based on the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. But what would invite us to pray? What would compel us to pray? Well, first of all, when we're honest with ourselves, our great need. Our great need testifies to us that God himself is the only one who can satisfy our real needs. Every time we imagine that we, creatures that we are, can be somehow self-sufficient, self-autonomous, pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, these, these are lies that tell us that we do not need our Father. Of course, other gods would love to reaffirm that and <laughs> assert their own lordship. You can't pull yourselves up from your own bootstraps, so you need me. The reality is we rely alone on our good and gracious God, the God who has already demonstrated his love for us, his care for us, his eternal fellowship with us, his open door. So our great need drives us to our knees and drives us to the altar where we can have full confidence that our prayers are welcome and heard. He has promised to hear. And his own commandment to pray. His commandment to call on me in the day of trouble, and I will hear you, and you will glorify me. The commandment of honoring his name is a command to prayer. 
to call on him and to no one else, to recognize God as God, and to repent of all other expressions of God. Who would be on the throne of my heart and mind? Well, everyone is seeking a place there. Every voice is out there looking for a place there, but God has earned it, and God has it, and it is, he is worthy of it. He has already shown us the fullness of his majesty and glory. He's already given us the gifts that we need. He has already assured us that he is God above all other voices, all other claims for Godship. So our great need and God's great command and finally his invitation, his invitation to hear and to do all things so that our prayers are acceptable to him. As we lift up our petitions, the Lord God gathers them in the work of his Holy Spirit to make them absolutely correct and absolutely acceptable to him. By the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, they are sanctified words and thoughts. And so even when we stumble or even when we don't know what to say or what to pray, God brings those yearnings of our own heart to the throne and to the altar of God to sanctify them, to answer them. Don't be fooled by the idea that if you don't get the answer, yes, that God has not heard you or that God has not answered you. Sometimes, in fact, at least in my experience, more often than not, a clear and clean yes is rare. But I do know, because of the Lord's promise, that not only does he hear, but he answers every one of our prayers. Answers them according to his wisdom. Sometimes, more often than not, it's not even so much a no as it is a, a yes in disguise. We are invited and commanded and welcomed to lay before the Lord exactly what it is that we have in mind and what is on our hearts. He wants to hear from us. He wants us to go into that conversation and lay bare all that we want and all that we hope for. That is the first act of faith, trusting that this God is my God. I bring my prayers to him. I put them where they belong. Your prayers belong with your God, and he wants to hear them. And as he accepts them, and as he welcomes them, and as he works them through in the life that he leads you in, we have these surprising moments when the answers come, which are a little bit off from what we thought they should be, or might be, or could be, and yet they are exactly right. In the course of life, and in the course of its experiences, our prayers sometimes look like they're open-ended, that they take a long time to reach their answer, sometimes, though, right away. 
There are prayers that perhaps you've prayed for years and years and years. Look forward to the surprise of their answering when you come into the presence of God and have his vision on your life together with him. And there are some prayers where you don't even get done praying them. And the amen is barely on your lips before the answer is walking through the door in one shape, fashion, or another. There are times, too, when somebody else is praying. And the Holy Spirit prompts you to do what is right, to do what is just, to do what is next. And in fact, you become the answer to somebody else's prayer. This isn't mind games. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is part of what the church is and part of what the church does. It is the body of Christ in action. Even the simplicity of, of the child that is the newborn crying out for milk or a diaper change. This is a call from God to God to answer. And so Jesus calls to Jesus so that service might be done. And Christ in you responds. These are the things of the church. We're invited to welcome the Lord's Prayer as a template for all kinds of our requests, both of the spiritual realm and of the body, as well as our prayers against evil. For God to act, for us to be secure, and for our prayers against all things that would tear us away from his kingdom. In the Lord's Prayer, there are seven petitions. Six of them are of a spiritual variety. Three on the positive, three against evil. And one for the sake of the body. It's not a bad thing to consider that ratio, six to one. And let that also teach us about our own prayers. As we think about all the things that we pray about, and, and sometimes the overwhelming addresses to God about things regarding the body, let's try to encourage ourselves over the next weeks to up our game on the spiritual realm, to ask God to convert the nations, to God, ask God to bring his gospel into the hearing of new people, to ask him to beat back the kingdom of Satan, to ask him to forgive as he leads us to forgive. And to imagine that for every prayer we might pray with regard to body, we might pray six prayers with regard to our souls and the souls of those around us. Just a thought. As we learn from our Lord to live in his tent and to share fellowship with him and share unity with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that we can address our God, not as someone unknown to us, but as someone we can know face to face. In Jesus' name, amen. May the peace of God that passes all human understanding keep your hearts and minds in faith towards Christ Jesus. Amen.